Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you here. Our key scripture this morning comes from the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3. Some of you have a concerned look on your face. I don't know if it's because uh, you're concerned about what's in Zephaniah, or you don't know where to find Zephaniah. It's, it's the one that starts with a Z. I'll give you that. We're going to be reading from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. I'll just read it here for you this morning, however. The writer says, The Lord God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I want to show you a couple of pictures this morning. Uh, This first one here, if you can bring that up, Bonnie. This is one of my uh, favorite pictures of Zeke when he was a baby. And I have to tell you why. Um, Zeke was born in the summer of 2006. And uh, so that, that summer, I, kind of, I didn't go on the mission trip. I didn't you know, do a whole lot uh, that summer. But the next summer, I had all of my youth minister stuff to do here. And so in the summer of, of 2007, I had to go to camp. And um, I was gone for a week at camp. And I was absolutely miserable. I missed Zeke and Nisha so much that, like, every day I was kind of moping around and I would call probably five or six times a day and I just had to hear them. And, and so uh, Zeke missed me too. And when I got home, this was uh, the Sunday after uh, I got home. And when I got home, Zeke wouldn't let me leave his sight. Um, he had to be with me all the time. And when I picked him up, when I got home, I I picked him up and and held him in my arms and he just grabbed onto me and and he wouldn't let go. Just to be fair, this is my favorite picture of Jed. (laughs) Right? Notice the drool on the front. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of drool going on right there. I was constantly worried about him being dehydrated. I just have to tell you, like it, was, it was a constant worry. But uh, these are my kids. And um, we don't always get along. We don't always agree on things. We don't always want to be in the same room. Uh, but I love them. And it would be difficult for me to stand here in front of you this morning or to talk with you privately and describe what it means for me to love my children. And every night when we put the kids to bed, uh, Jed in particular has a routine where he wants you to tuck him in, and uh, as soon as you pull the blanket up, he pushes the blanket back down, and if he's wearing a shirt, he pulls it up because he wants you to rub his stomach. And then uh, Nisha has to come in and sit on the bed with him, and Nisha and Jed sing songs together. And they sing uh, the Kookaburra song. But one of the songs that they sing is Shout Hallelujah. And they sing it together every night um, while I'm downstairs watching television. (laughs) (laughs) And here's why I want you to have those images in your head. Because there is something I'm about to tell you that, frankly, is difficult to believe. And I can't begin to understand it, and I can't tell you why it is. But here you go. God loves you. 
God, the creator of the universe, the one who is so far beyond us we can't begin to understand or fathom, that God who has, let's just be honest, no need for us, loves us. In fact, as Zephaniah wrote here, at a time where the people of God were away from God, Zephaniah wrote about how he, God himself, could not wait for his people to be back in relationship with him again. And when he describes the picture, he says that God will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. His joy and his love at being reunited with you will be uncontained. To where all he can do is shout hallelujah over you. You know, as a parent, one of the things that is the greatest when your kids are little is when you come home. When you're reunited. And when your kids see you and they come and they run to you and they put their arms up to you because the one thing they want more than anything else is to have that moment with you. Where you pick them up and you put them in your arms. Whether you've been gone all day or 45 minutes, sometimes it doesn't even matter. But that is the moment that God looks forward to. The moment of being united with us again. And I don't know why. I know a lot of you. I don't know why God would feel this way. And yet it's amazing because he does. Church, we have a God that loves us. That not only loves us, but delights in us. And that not only delights in us, but longs for the moment where his joy and love will be uncontained and he can celebrate being with us. That's a mystery, but I am so thankful. Are you? So uh, welcome to week two of our campaign, How to Think Like a Christian. And... uh, Many of you were here with us last week, uh, and so you know that we covered a lot of ground. For those of you who were not here, we are going to do uh, a really quick review. We want you to think like a Christian. Okay, so we started our conversation with uh, a couple of few key points that I want to uh, go over again really quick. And that's, so that's this. As Christians, we uh, work to live the kind of lives that God wants us to live, Yes. Yes, I mean, this is our goal. We want to model ourselves after Jesus Christ. And while we listen to the voice of God for guidance, we are also influenced by all kinds of different ideas from the world around us. And some of those ideas are good, and some of those ideas are bad. And one of the key principles that we introduced last week is this one. Ideas are like viruses. So ideas can spread. Uh, really far and they can spread wide and sometimes they can spread and take over before we even realize what's happening. And one of the key ideas that we talked about last week is if you remember this, when a virus actually goes into the body, it will often coat itself in protein. 
And because it's covered in protein, the body doesn't recognize that this virus is bad for it. And so it accepts the protein, and by the time it gets down through it and realizes that the virus is there, it's too late. And so this is one of the key ideas that we talked about last week, is when we talk about ideas being like viruses, and particularly when we talk about bad ideas versus good ideas, bad ideas don't just walk up to us and say, hello, I'm a bad idea, would you please use me? Okay, right? Instead, what they do is they coat themselves in truth so that they sound like something we've heard before, so that they sound like something that would be true, so that it sounds like a principle. But if we're not careful, these ideas can get in there and change how we understand the truth, change how we understand God. So we are influenced, again, by five basic uh, worldviews. And again, a worldview is just the way that we see the world, the way that we process the, the ideas that come, uh, how we look at the world based on those different things. So here they are again. Uh, the first one is secularism, uh, which claims that we can use human intelligence to control life and make it turn out the way that we want. This, this idea basically says humanity is the, is the pinnacle, is the top, and that there is nothing beyond us. The second idea is Marxism, which declares that life is about capital and uh, the true path to peace and equality is through violent overthrow of all existing social structures, government, economic systems, family, and religion. So within this mindset, again, anything that is organized or institutionalized is bad. The church is included in that. And all of those things should be broken down. Uh, The next one is postmodernism which insists that objective, capital T, truth, doesn't exist. Only the subjective, lowercase t, truths that we, that we create from ourselves, for ourselves. So in this particular way, you see that people are allowed to determine what is true for them. But what's true for you may not be true for them. Next, we have new spirituality, which, which asserts that a higher consciousness or God force is at the core of reality. That consciousness or God force is very undefined. And people can reach it in a lot of different ways. But that's what new spirituality says. And then lastly, Islam, which teaches that everyone uh, is born Muslim in submission to Allah and must conform to Islamic truth or be conquered through jihad, the struggle against anything opposed to to Allah and Islam. Man, I am really having a hard time. I've been drinking water and it hasn't helped. <clears throat> I feel like my tongue is just like sticking to my top of my mouth. Yeah, that's a pleasant image for you there. So these are all the ideas that are influencing us um, all the time that are around us. And on top of that, we talked about five important questions that in general, everyone is going to ask at some point in their lives and and struggle with what the answer uh, to these questions are. And so the first one is, am I loved? If I were to disappear, would anyone miss me? Number two, why do I hurt? Bad things have happened to me, and can I overcome those bad things and find joy? Because it sure doesn't feel like I can. Number three, does life have meaning? Is it possible for me to find direction for my life to be bigger than what I feel like it's going to be? Number four, 
Is it possible for us all to just get along? Uh, what will it take for us to stop fighting and to find harmony and peace with one another? And lastly, is there any hope for the world? If all of these things are going wrong around us, if nothing is coming together, then what hope do we actually have? And so the set of ideas that we have that we use to form our answers to these questions, again, is called our worldview. And our worldview monitors the ideas that we are exposed to and isolates the ones that appear to be destructive. But it's possible for us to let other things in, for these other voices to influence us, so that we don't just hear the voice of God or the voice of Jesus, we hear all of these other things mixed with it. So this morning, we are going to try to address the first question. And what is the first question, people? Am I loved? Okay. Have we talked about love recently? Yes, we have. We have talked about love recently. Uh, And, you know, as a preacher, it can be a little bit of a struggle to, uh, you know, I I feel pressure when when I'm teaching to come up with new things to say about stuff, you know, so that you're not just like, oh, well, we heard that three weeks ago. We heard that four weeks ago. Come on, man. Bring your A game, right? You got to come in. You got to bring something new. Um and I was actually, I, I was talking with, with Don this morning, we were talking about it, it says, yeah, Don says, sometimes it feels like you can only say so many things about something. But that actually gave me pause as I was sitting here thinking about that this morning. Because if there is one issue or topic that we could probably not exhaust when it comes to God, it is his love. Okay? So even though we have been talking about it so much, I want us to turn fresh ears to this today because there, I think there, isn't something, there is something important for us in this that we need to take away uh, from our discussion today. So that question, am I loved? I think that we can all agree that this is a pretty important question, right? Uh, but let's go beyond that, okay? Everyone in the world... I think, is searching primarily for the answer to this question. Am I loved? And there's a lot of questions that we can tie to this, right? Do I matter? Am I significant in this world? Is there someone that cares for me in a way that goes beyond how everyone else cares for me? Here's something interesting, and I'm sure that you've heard uh, you know, little factoids like this before, but a study of Romanian orphans found that lack of love in early life led to decreased brain activity. Um, without affection, a person's language center, emotions, and ability to take in information get short-circuited and can lead to lifelong problems. So I want you to, to process that information for a second. Children, and not just in Romania, okay, but children who experience a lack of love their brains and the way they think and their ability to process information actually becomes less than those who are loved and shown affection when they're little. What does that tell you about us? We need love. We need it. In order to become fully developed, fully functional people, we need to have a strong sense of love in our lives. And if we do not have that, we don't become, even by normal non-Christian standards, we don't become the kind of people that we could be. That's remarkable 
to me. That that is true about us. And so it tells us that at the basic root of who we are, we need to experience love. Now, we all need it. We all need to experience love and have love in our lives, but there's a, there's a tricky question when we start talking about love, and that is this. Who is defining what love means? Who is defining what love means? If we're going to say everyone need love, needs love, then what kind of love are we talking about? If we are allowing the world, the society, the culture that we live in to define love for us, I think that we find one thing to be very true. Love, defined by this world, is almost always contingent upon something else. Now, here's what I mean by that. Love is contingent upon someone else's approval or acceptance. Okay, well, do they love you? Do they, how do they show that love? Do they let you be exactly who you are? Have they tried to change anything? Well, if you just love me, you'll let me be approval or acceptance. It's contingent upon that. It's also often the sense of love. It's also contingent upon our own sense of fulfillment. Do I feel good about this? Are you allowing me to be the best person that I can be? Are you doing all of these things? And so not only is it that someone has to accept us, but we also have to feel the right way about how they accept us. I think I told you this story before, so I'm just going to tell it to you very briefly again. A, a woman came into my uh, office one day, and she was, she was referred to come and talk to me by, by one of her neighbors, and her husband um, came home on her 25th anniversary and told her that he was gay and that he didn't love her anymore on their 25th wedding anniversary. And then he wanted her to go to a club with him. Seriously. And she said no. And this is what he said. Well, don't you love me? And she said, well, I thought I did, but I don't know what this is. And he said, well, if you love me, you'll go with me to this club to celebrate our anniversary, even though we're divorcing. Okay? It seems crazy, right? It's an extreme example. It's an extreme example. But it does represent something that's true of us, right? We oftentimes base whether, sometime, whether someone loves us or not on our own sense of fulfillment. Are you meeting all of my needs? If you do, then you love me. And if you're not, then maybe you don't. But what do we know is true? It's almost, that's, that's an impossible task, isn't it? To find one person or relationship to meet all of your needs. And, and lastly, this, this pours into our own sense of self-worth. Is this love validating me in the way that I need to be validated? Like this guy who comes, what did he believe love was about? Well, he believed that love was about his wife saying yes to who he was, no matter what that meant to her and their children and their life. He just wanted her to say, yes, be who you are, and then go celebrate with him. But what is the one thing he missed? There was no way she could do that, right? Because in that one moment, her whole life crumbled and fell apart. But he was looking for validation, so he mixed it. Now, think about for a second what dating is like. For some of you, it's been a while since you dated. You know, it's been, you know, a month or so. And so it's, it, it's been a little while. But think about what dating is like. 
dating is a torturous event. Um, it, is, it is one of the most awful things that we have to engage in as people. Uh, and we now, it's, I think it's worse now than it, than it used to be because we now have things like phone apps to help us date. And so here's what you do. You can join something like Tinder, for example. Maybe you know what Tinder is. Maybe you don't. Let me educate you for a second. Okay? Tinder is an app that you put on your phone and you create a profile for yourself. And you put a picture up and you say uh, clever and witty things about yourself. And then people uh, use this app and your picture comes up and they can either swipe right or left. If they swipe one way, that means... They don't approve of you, and if they swipe the other way, it means they do approve of you, which then you're allowed to write them a message. Think about that for a second. All right? Let's just, a lot of people are not using Tinder to find love, so let's just be fair about this particular thing, okay? But let's just think about this as a model for finding love for a moment, okay? How does it happen? Well, you get the courage to put yourself out there. You find you know, the best possible picture that you can, all right, where your eyes don't look crazy because it's very important in dating apps that you don't have crazy eyes, right? You put that out there, okay, and then you try to look. And people all over the area, the state, however far this thing goes, are sitting there going, cute, not cute, cute, ew, Right? And just going through that whole thing. What this sort of clarifies for me is thank God for Nisha, for one thing, but how, how totally scary that is. How totally scary that is. That this is a model that we have today for what it means to put yourself out and available to someone. And as much as we say that love is a guiding principle in the world around us, we do live in a place where love fails all the time. Love fails all the time. Husband and wives fall out of love. Children and parents are estranged from each other. Family members stop speaking to one another. Some of our deepest relationships that are supposed to be characterized by love end up sometimes being the greatest sources of pain and disappointment in our lives. I mean... This is just true. So here's what we need to acknowledge because this is important for us to get to our end point today. Everyone needs love. Everyone. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what their life choices are, everyone needs love. But love in this world is not a sure thing. And love certainly is not easy. And what does it mean when we are told that love is what we really need and yet you look back at your own life and experiences and you are overwhelmed by how love has failed you over and over again? So it tells us something, and this is something really important, okay? Love is the answer, but love is not simple. Love is the answer, but love is not simple. 
We're going to see this as we look at what these different worldviews have to say about love. Now, we're not going to get into all of them in depth in terms of what they say. We're mainly going to focus on what one particular worldview has to say. But just take a look at sort of the scope of this, what people think about love in the world. We're going to start with Marxism. Marxism argues that we can't find love because capitalists rig the system to cause us to always want more than we have. Now, that's, that's, an, that's a, think about that statement for a second. Capitalists rig the system to cause us to always want more than we have. We are programmed to think that we are lacking in wealth or possessions, and when that happens, we begin to think that we will only be fulfilled when our relationships meet all of our expectations for all that we have or all that they could be. And they argue that our relationships actually end up being possessions. Postmodernism says we speak of love to mask what we're really after, which is sex. Sex is what we all want. And those in power uh, around us, they actually control us through guilt. And they make us feel ashamed for being sexual people And so the solution is to explore sexuality all that you want until you just don't feel guilty anymore. And that not feeling guilty actually is you're reaching a higher plane of understanding yourself and enlightenment. That's what postmodernism says. New spirituality, which I think we're going to find as we look through a lot of this, is characteristically fuzzy about this. Um, Because what new spirituality says is that the universe is love. And so love is everywhere, and we are part of the universe, and therefore we are love. And if we don't feel love, it's because we are not plugged in enough to the universal power that's all around us. One uh, New Spiritualist writer says, Every problem inside and out is due to separation from love on someone's part. When we reunite with universal love and plug ourselves back into the universe, we become attractive. Interesting thought. Have, have some of you heard some of these things before? Probably yes. Okay. Islam uh, doesn't talk a lot about love or sex, not surprisingly, at least in their sacred writings. Uh, love is mentioned only 69 times in the Quran, and many of the references pertain to the dangers of loving something besides Allah. Um, but one impression comes through clearly that Allah's love must be earned by you submitting totally to him. That's how he loves you, is by you being uh, completely under his control. He will love you if you trust him, exercise patience, and fight on his behalf. So let's get to the last one because I think this one is is one of the most influential. Secularism. Um, It may have one of the most influential voices when we talk about love and how our society and culture views love. Uh, And here's what they say. Secularists say, we don't feel loved uh, because we haven't yet freed ourselves from society's constraints about sexuality. It sounds a little bit like postmodernism, but hang with me here. And and here's what they say. Nothing beyond this world, this material world, exists. Um, The Enlightenment gave birth uh, to this viewpoint which uh, blamed, again, religion said, 
um, was was holding everyone down. And so the Enlightenment said, uh, we can move past all of this and just be who we are and be humanity. And Enlightenment also gave birth to Darwinism, which had a huge effect on how we view sexuality. Because in some ways, Darwinism reduced us to being um, creatures of circumstance, if I can say that. So in other words, we weren't necessarily created with any sort of purpose or meaning. We just came to be. And ultimately, we're really nothing more than super evolved animals. And what do we expect of animals? Right? To eat, to stay alive, and to procreate. That's all we really expect from them. And so these are some of the ideas that make up the basis for how secularism views love in the world. But here's the thing. If exposure to sex could fulfill our craving for love, then we would be a very fulfilled society right now. We would. Uh, In the United States, 46% of high school students have had sex. And that figure rises to over 70% by the time students are in college. Now, I'm going to throw some things out here at you this morning, and I don't want you to panic. All right? Because sometimes when we talk about the way that the world is, we can't overcome how the world is. Right? And it becomes where we get stuck. So what I want you to know is that as bad as everything sounds there is something very important that you can do about it. Okay? The Washington Post ran an article this last week. I don't know if any of you uh, came across it on your Apple News feed or anything else, Um, but it's about a new trend. And so I'm going to read to you just a little bit from this article here today. Um, So they talked to Kevin, which is not his real name. You'll know why he didn't put his real name in in a second. Uh, Kevin is a 24-year-old recent college graduate from Denver, And he wants to get married someday and is almost 100% positive that he will, but not soon, he says, because, I quote, I am not done being stupid yet. I still want to go out and have sex with a million girls. He believes that he's figured out how to do that. Here's what he says. Don't hate me, okay? (laughs) I am not Kevin. Girls are easier to mislead than guys just by lying or just not really caring. If you know what girls want, then you know you should not give that to them until the proper time. If you do that strategically, then you can really have anything you want, whether it's a relationship, sex, or whatever, you have the control. Kevin was one of 100 men and women from a cross-section of American communities that was interviewed five years ago as the writers sought to understand how adults in their 20s and early 30s think about their relationships. And he sounds like a completely awful human being, (laughs) just to be straight with you. But his strategy works, 100%. Marriage in the U.S. today, the writer says, is in open retreat. As recently as 2000, married 25 to 34-year-olds outnumbered their never-married peers by a margin of 55% to 34%. So just those short years ago, seven, well, 17 years ago now, I guess, uh, 55% uh, were married versus 34% being never married. By 2015, 
the most recent year for which this data is available, those measurements have almost reversed, with never-marrieds now reaching 53% and marrieds reaching 40%. Okay, so it's flipped in that time. And here's what that tells us. Our society, our culture, has changed the way it looks at marriage. It has changed the way it looks at marriage. And this was the conclusion that the writer came to, and and this is what the writer says. For American men, sex has become rather cheap. As compared to the past, many women today expect little in return for sex in terms of time, attention, commitment, or fidelity. Men, in turn, do not feel compelled to supply these goods as they once did. It is the new sexual norm for Americans, men and women alike, of every age. This is the world that we live in. So what does this tell us? And that is this, okay? As much as we might like to profess, and as much as people outside these walls might like to say, love is who we are, and love is the universe, and love is the answer, is our highest state of being, we do not live in that place. We don't. We might want to. We might strive after that, but the fact of the matter is that the way our culture is changing and moving, love is being de-emphasized instead of being brought to the forefront. And, I mean, just think about it in these terms. Historically speaking, what have been the two highest signs of love within our culture, marriage and sex, parenthood aside, okay? Marriage, committing yourself to someone else for the rest of your life, and sex, which is supposed to be the most intimate thing we can ever offer someone else. And as it stands now, sex is not even associated with love for many, many people. And marriage is on the decline. So here is my question. Do we live in a time when our society accurately understands what love is or what it should be? I don't think so. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, it's one of the things about new spiritualism. One of the things that's attractive about it to so many people, is that they talk about how the universe is love. And that draws a lot, because we, we want that to be true, right? But the problem is, it doesn't tell people how to access that. And it doesn't tell people how to live their lives under that umbrella. We don't live in a time where people understand love very well. And so then... What does it mean when Christianity enters the conversation and says, well, God is love? What does it mean? I'm afraid it doesn't mean very much. Because what has Christianity also done? They, we have said that God is love, and yet we have not loved people. We have said that God is the great creator and maker and we have rejected others. 
And if the world itself can't define love, even with their own parameters, then how are they going to begin to understand a love like God's, particularly if we are the example for what it means? Too harsh? Too much? No? So let's, let's admit, okay, there are a lot of bad ideas when it comes to love. And here are, are five of them that we see uh, sort of raise themselves into our conversation. Number one, and, and this is what a lot of people say, God doesn't love you unless you do exactly what he says. Therefore, God doesn't really exist. You can forget about uh, some sort of love and just move on to the physical stuff. Or if you think thoughts about love, you can find love in that way. But let's just put all this love talk aside. So here's what I want us to focus on this morning, because I think this is the key, sort of the heart to this discussion for us. Okay? And, and, and here is, here's the main thing that I want us uh, to talk about. What is the main difference between the love that the world experiences and the love that we have to offer through Jesus Christ. What is the difference between those two things? Because if everybody needs love and everybody is looking for love and we have the best form of love, then what is it that makes it the best? What is it that makes it something that everyone, no matter who they're, where they're from or what their experience is or what their background is, what is it that will make them want to engage this love that we have and that we have to offer. And then, how can we offer it? Generally speaking, okay, generally speaking, the love that we see in the world is fundamentally different from God's because it is a selfish kind of love. And we look at that word selfish, and immediately, so in my mind, my mind jumps to like the worst definition of selfish. But there are some other terms I want you to associate. Self-preserving might be a good term. Uh, we, we talked about this uh, just a few weeks ago, and so I, I want to repeat this part because I think it's relevant. The love that we practice as humans is inherently conditional. Conditionality is built right into what it is. And again, we claim four main areas of love in our lives, even as Christians, right? We claim um, our family, excuse me, our friends, our church, and everyone else. Um, If we were to compare our level of love for those four different areas, they would be in descending order. Most love for our family, second most love for our friends, third most love for our church, Uh, the least amount of love for everyone else, which that is a completely undefined amount, by the way. So here is the truth. Even in our closest relationships, we have conditions that must be met in order for us to love those people. And I want to say something really quick. Those conditions are not necessarily bad or frivolous in any sort of way. You expect your spouse to not cheat on you, correct? That makes sense. Sure. You expect your children to love you and treat you with a certain amount of respect. Yes? 
That makes sense. We have conditions on all these things. And when those conditions are broken, what happens? Oftentimes, the relationships break. Or you have one person who is carrying the burden of this thing, trying to make it work and trying to make it go. But here's the thing we have to realize, that virtually all of these different approaches ask a a significant question when it comes to love. And it says this, I will love, but what is in it for me? I will choose you as my wife, but what are you going to do for me as my wife? You can be my child. You kind of have to be in a lot of cases. But as my child, this is what I expect from you. And here's the thing that's interesting about us, okay? We long for a love that is big and accepts us as we are and that just takes us, but then we give love in a completely opposite way. We want to receive it in one way and we give it in a completely different way. Billionaire investor Warren Buffett, he told a college audience that the only thing that matters in life, listen to this, is being loved by the people, sounds good so far, you want to have love you. The only thing that matters in life is being loved by the people you want to have love you. It sounds good at first, but then when you start to think about it, the one who is the object of love is making themselves the center of even being Loved by others. You love me? I don't care. I don't care if I'm loved by you. As long as I'm loved by this person. And is that what love really is? The love of God is fundamentally different from our kind of love. And I don't know how many times we could say this and talk about this, but it is too true. The love of God is fundamentally different from our kind of love. And the Bible tells us that God's love is the only real form of love that there is. That it's the only real form of love that there is. How is it different? Let's just keep it simple again. God's love is selfless, where our love is selfish. And we see this so clearly when we look at the life of Jesus. Because people experienced this difference, this transition, when they met Jesus. And here are just some examples for you to think about. From John chapter 4. You know this story if you've read your Bible before and, and looked at the life of Jesus. But Jesus meets this woman at the well. And this woman has been married five times. Now listen, if you were to meet someone today who was married five times you would probably say that's a lot of marriages. In Jesus' time, she might as well have been married 500 times as been married five times. And she was then, at that time when Jesus met her, living with someone who was not her husband. Can we say, though we don't know anything about her background, can we say that love has been a failure in her life? Yes, we can. Love has been a failure in her life. And when she met Jesus, 
He accepted her. At that, he spoke to her, even though there were multiple reasons why he shouldn't. And he told her that her life could be fulfilled if she would follow the God that still loves her and that doesn't want her to be thirsty anymore. And what did she do? This woman who was hiding out from people, who was going to the well at the hottest time of day to drag water back to the house when no one else would be there, she runs back to the town and tells everyone about this God and about this person, Jesus. What about the Jesus or the woman that that Jesus met, the one that was caught in adultery in John chapter 8? She's found, and we don't know the circumstances of this, it's awfully suspicious. But she's found sleeping with someone who is not her husband. She is not his wife. And the religious leaders drag her out of bed naked into the middle of the street and take her to Jesus. And there's a punishment that God would put on her, which is she is to be beaten to death right there in the middle of the street for what she's done. So whatever drove her to be in this relationship in the first place, to be with someone who is not her husband, to be the mistress of a man that that does not love her in this way, she is now at the mercy of a God that wants to kill her for the decisions that she's made. What is love to her? Nothing. And Jesus, with just a few words, drives everyone away in shame. And she looks at him, and the question that hangs in the air is, what about me? And he says, Go and sin no more, which is such a throwaway statement for us. But it's not, because understand what he's saying to her. Your life can be different than it is, because I represent a God who loves you. What about Paul? In Acts chapter 9, by the time we see him, he's Saul, and he's been traveling around the country, killing Christians because of his strong love for God and because they are all speaking against his God and he can't stand it and so he's killing everybody and he meets Jesus on the road and he has to spend a few days in the dark thinking about what he's done. No one wants to go talk to him about this. It seems like a terribly bad idea, but when the lights are finally turned on, Paul was able to walk away from being a murderer of Christians and become the mouthpiece for Jesus in the world. What must it have felt like to realize that you have been persecuting God and then to have that God give you the opportunity to work for him? All of these people were looking for love, acceptance, and purpose. But the fact of the matter is that they did not find it until they met Jesus. They did not find it until they met Jesus. They didn't find it until they met Jesus. 
That is still true. It's still true. People desperately want to be loved in this way. They are looking for it under every rock, in every cave, behind every single door. But they're not going to find it until they find Jesus. Because every other form of love they encounter in this world has a shelf life. It's going to fail in some way. It is going to end at some point. And they will not find the love and acceptance and purpose that they want until they meet Jesus. Because Jesus' love is selfless. It gives. Jesus said himself in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. Not, will you keep doing this for me and I'll be your friend. But I will lay down my life for you because this is what love means. And we looked at this passage in John. This is how we know what love is from 1 John 3.16. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. God's love is a selfless love that gives to us where every other love that we face in the world is on some level going to take. Is going to take. But God's love gives. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ gave his life for us. And then he says, and we ought to lay down our lives. For who? He doesn't say for God, for our brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians 13. When Paul, who experienced this on the road, wrote about love, he wrote every wedding sermon that has ever been given since then. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes... What is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. 
For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, the greatest of these is love. I look at that list of things and I marvel at them. Because this is what love is. But you know what? Paul is not describing me. And he's not describing you. And he's not describing marriage. He's not describing parents and children. He is describing one thing. The one real thing. The love that God has for his people. What does it say to you that there are people in this world that say God doesn't love them? That they have heard from us that God doesn't love them? We can look at the state of how things are today and we can clench our fists and shake them to the heavens. But there's one thing that will change all of it. And that is if the church of Jesus Christ goes out and shares the love of God with other people. There is no substitute for the love of God through Jesus Christ. And when you have experienced it and you know it, it is your sacred obligation to go out into a world that is broken and hurting and in desperate need of love and to introduce them to Jesus. Because they're looking everywhere. They're looking everywhere. And they want this so badly. And they've come up with all sorts of ideas about what love is and what love isn't, about how love works and how it doesn't work. They've experienced all kinds of things that have educated them as to how much of a falsehood love is or how much of a failed pursuit it is to go after something like that. And yet you and I sit here and stand here today as those who were complete and utter failures as of... Ten minutes ago. And we have experienced the love of God that says, even though so many things have gone on in your life, I still love you. Some of you know about the things that have happened to me before, the depression that I faced, the dark time that I went through, and how I really, I didn't know what was going on with me. A couple of weeks ago, I was at home, and um, my siblings were together for the first time in, in forever, and I hadn't seen my older sister in in a couple of years, and um, she has this thing where when you leave her or she leaves you, well, not when she leaves you, that wouldn't be possible, but when you leave her, she has to stand out in the street until she can't see your car anymore. This is my 55-year-old sister. And my sister 
came to the hospital. When I was... <clears throat> She came to the hospital when I was in the emergency room and she saw me when I was at my very worst. And you know what she said? She's standing out there two weeks ago and she watches me drive away. She turns to Nisha. And she said, thank you for not giving up on him. Because she didn't. And the closest thing that I know to the love of God is the way that my wife loves me. And it's for this reason. She had every excuse in the world to leave me behind. And she didn't. Because she loved me. God has every excuse in the world. We are the hamster in the box that has nothing to offer to him. And God will not walk away from us. And if you don't think that the people outside need to hear something like that, then you have forgotten what the love of God is in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our loving God and there is no way we can comprehend what that means. There is no way we can wrap our minds around what it means that you love us in the way that you do because God, your love is such a different brand of love. But God, you promise us the real thing. And God, we are all asking the question, the world around us is asking the question, am I loved? And the answer is yes. But we are not loved by someone somewhere that we may never find. We are loved by you here now and always. We thank you for your love, which is bigger and greater than we are, than anything we can invent or anything we can create. And Father, may we be the kinds of people that take love out into this world and show other people how important they are to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in this way, this unique way, we invite you to come forward as we stand singing this song together.